Well, a couple of weeks ago, with his final school exams done and dusted, my son Tom went on holiday with two friends, and they went to Valencia in Spain, like glamorous, for four nights on a very reasonably priced short break. It was the first time that any of them had been out of the country without parental or school support, but I was at Pilgrim Hall anyway, so it seemed to fit well. And before he left, I said to him, keep in touch. That said, <laughs> you know, that said, Tom's idea of keeping in touch and mine are two very, very different things. So I was very surprised when I arrived at Pilgrim Hall to get a text message from Spain saying, have arrived safely in Valencia. Now, feeling a little bit reassured, I started to settle into Pilgrim Hall myself, We're alongside many of you too. And about an hour later, though, I got another text message, most unusual, got another text message which said, the King of Spain has just abdicated. <laughs> now, for just a moment, I wondered whether Tom, Simon and Big Johnny's arrival in Spain was in some way connected with Juan Carlos's, with Juan Carlos's decision regarding the throne. Perhaps, I wondered, the arrival of three boisterous, fun-loving lads from Wimbledon schools on his peaceful shores had been the straw that had broken the camel's back. Well, I quickly dismissed the idea because I did nonetheless wonder why he'd made such a move, Juan Carlos, that is. Well, there are a number of reasons which aren't really relevant to our study of the Apostles' Creed this morning, but one has some interesting echoes. And it was reported in the Daily Telegraph last Monday, who said that according to the Spanish newspaper El Mundo, King Juan Carlos had told the head of his royal household, Rafael Spotano, I don't want my son to wither away waiting like Prince Charles has. Hmm. Well, is the, is the process of succession to the crown really one in which the next in line merely withers away like a flower untended, losing its beauty, vigor, and potential until it's dried out? Well, I hope not. But it did make me reflect on how very different is the biblical understanding of sonship and Jesus' place at God's right hand, seated on the throne of heaven. Because his is not a story of waiting for power, filling in his time until the main event gets going, but one of sovereignty now. And there are a few earthly models that even hint at the type of relationship between father and son enjoyed by Jesus and his father. And yet, it's there, in the Apostles' Creed. He is seated at the right hand of his Father. So, like all things we say we believe, it's good to understand a bit more about what we're espousing and why it's important. And that's what we'll do this morning. Now, it might not have escaped your notice that the Apostles' Creed has already said a great deal about Jesus. We've heard that he's God's Son and our Lord. We've heard how he was born. We've heard about his earthly life, death and resurrection, and his ascension. And next week, 
We're going to hear that he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. So we've heard what's happened to him in the past, if you like, what will happen in the future. But there's only this one line about where Jesus is now, if you like, what he's doing. And it's that same one. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. So that, if you like, is Jesus' present tense. That's another good reason to explore what this line means, because when we talk about having a relationship with him or praying to Jesus, it's good to have in mind where he is and what that represents. So we're going to explore a few areas this morning. First, what's the significance of Jesus in that line being seated? Seated at the right hand. Then power. How powerful is the position of being at God's right hand after all? And finally, prayer. What implications are there for our prayer to him? But first, it's worth highlighting that this line that trips off our tongues, seated at the right hand of the Father, as believers, in the creed, was the same one that in the Bible condemned Jesus to death. I want you to turn with me, if you would, just grab a Bible for a moment and turn with me to, not the passage that we've just heard, but turn with me to page 1022, if you wouldn't mind. It's in Mark's Gospel, 1022. And cast your eyes, if you would, to the top left hand corner of that page. And you see that post-Gethsemane, Jesus is being, uh, is receiving inquisition from the Sanhedrin, the top Jewish court of the time. And the high priest asks him, if you can see it, it's there in the second half of verse 61. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest responds in the next verse, 63, by tearing his clothes, which means that what he's just heard, he regards as blasphemy. And Jesus is condemned to death for Pilate's execution. In other words, this claim that Jesus makes in verse 62, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, was so dangerous that it carried a death sentence. Because a claim to be seating at the right hand of the Mighty One was a claim that he himself was God and shared in all of the Father's power and authority. So, let's start to unpack this idea a little, leaving our clothes intact. Um, As we, as believers, just want to understand a little more of God. Now, quite often when I study a sentence, like we've got this one in the creed before us, the easiest way I find is to look at the verb, because the verb tells us what what the subject is doing. And here the verb is 
seated or sitting. Now normally, if someone's seated, that has a couple of relevant connotations as far as I'm concerned at least. I think of someone seated as occupying a position of authority or power of one sort or another. Judges sit, don't they, when they're considering a case. A member of the gentry might have a country seat. A queen or king sits on the throne. A member of parliament has a seat in the House of Commons. In all these cases, being seated means to occupy a position of influence, power and authority. And yet it's got another different connotation as well. When Abney Murray had finished his Wimbledon winning final, like all of his predecessors, he went to sit down. When Bradley Wiggins won the cycle race that finished at Hampton Court, he sat down too, a throne in his case. And when you or I have had an exhausting day, we usually sit down and perhaps have a cup of tea. Sitting is rest. And we do it because something's over. I'm sure many of you recall that marvellous line in the Holy Communion Prayer of Thanksgiving that we said last week when we recall that Jesus made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' earthly life culminating in the cross the resurrection and ascension was too a moment of completion. A moment when his work was done because his sacrifice was enough for all past, present and future sins. And do you remember that Jesus said from the cross with his dying breath, it is finished. There was no question that he'd have to pop back every other year and sacrifice again his sacrifice was enough, and the, the old system that had, uh, that, that had existed prior to that, a perpetual animal sacrifice, was over, and had been made redundant by the blood of God's sacrificial lamb. So he's finished, and thus he's seated. I love this picture of God ultimately at rest. I think it challenges us to rest. Our work isn't done in quite the same way, but in a sense it is because there's nothing more that we can do that's going to make us more or less acceptable to God, more or less deserving of his sacrifice. If he's finished, in a sense, then so have we. We merely have to follow him. So, seated at the right hand, not getting up every five minutes, not restless, not running, chasing, or waiting to get back to work. If he's seated, and our salvation has been his work, then our salvation is also complete and perfect. Turn to my second point, that of being at God's right hand. And that's important. Why? Because it means that, Je- that Jesus shares in all of God's power and authority. Now, as I said earlier, our contemporary meaning of some of these words doesn't always cover what's really meant here. I mean, for example, as Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg could be thought of as David Cameron's right-hand man. That's where he sits at Prime Minister's questions. But few of us would conclude that Nick Clegg shares David Cameron's power 
and authority. You see, this term in the creed that God's right hand has a very specific meaning. It's that Jesus shares God's very position of divine rule over all creation. He shares his position of divine rule over all creation. And we know from the reading that we heard in Hebrews that he lives forever. In verse 25, that he's therefore able to save completely those who come to God through him. He meets our needs because he's holy, blameless, and exalted above all the heavens. We're told his enemies will be made his footstool, and by his sacrifice he has made perfect those who are being made holy. Jesus is as high as you can go, above all the heavens in Ephesians 4, above every name in Philippians 2, and over all in Romans 9. As high up as you can go. And earlier in this series, we established Jesus as co-author of creation. And this, together with his position of sharing in power, is enough to establish him in the place that the Old Testament saw as belonging only possibly to God. For only God rules from that throne exalted above all things. No one shares that position. He's unique. He is creator, judge, and savior. Functioning as God, worshipped in the same way, and sitting on the same throne. As far as the image of a prince withering in waiting, as it's possible to get. Let me give you an example of what that power sharing with the Father means. As I mentioned briefly in the introduction, 35 members of this church went a couple of weeks ago to Pilgrim Hall in East Sussex, and indeed, a number of you. And as leader of this party, I tend to have probably the most to do with the folk in the office at Pilgrim Hall, the administration and the management. I have to deal with issues that come up, uh, dietary requirements, booking, room preferences, paying for the bill, and all that sort of stuff. Now, there are two members of staff who I deal with principally. And they're called Sandra and Jasmine. They're different people. Both want to help, though, and they share many of the same office functions, although I think it falls short of a formal job share. Now, if I send an email to them, it might get answered by Sandra, but it might get answered by Jasmine. And if I reply to Jasmine, somehow Sandra seems to know about it as well. Jasmine and Sandra both have the authority to agree a price, make room bookings, vary numbers of guests, commit to forward plans. They have the same authority. If I walk into the office, I might see either Sandra or Jasmine. They're in the same place. There's no hierarchy. Whichever it is, I know they'll be able to help. I might talk to Sandra slightly differently. And there are some things I laugh about with Jasmine that happened when Sandra wasn't around. Now, I I won't labour the illustration because Pilgrim Hall is not the kingdom of heaven and Sandra and Jasmine fall short of divinity. I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying. But they do have the same levels of power and authority. Both can be accessed. Both are the same, but different. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and he shares his power and authority. The throne is his 
And by his complete salvation of us, we are made perfect too. So on to my third and final point, point briefly, on prayer. If Jesus has the divine rule over creation, then he's rightfully the focus for our prayer. Many of our set prayers say, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the channel for our entreaties. Why? Because he has the power. But there's more than that to it. Because as we heard earlier in the Creed series, Jesus was also born, suffered, died, was tempted, we know that, wept, struggled with God's will, but accepted it. So he's a right focus for prayer because he's got the power and he's lived our life. He knows our struggles and in his earthly life showed compassion, understanding as well as amazing powers of healing and transformation. So we pray to him because he's the Father's elected channel of righteousness, mercy and forgiveness. Let me give you an example of that too. A friend of mine had a real old ding-dong battle with one of these very, very large mega mobile phone companies. It took four months. They'd made an error in their accounts, which showed her as having defaulted on a payment, whereas in fact it was someone of the same name. Now, this erroneous default affected her credit rating, and that apparently is the last thing you want to happen. So much so that she was unable to get a mortgage on a new house she was buying until that error was corrected. And she persevered for ages to get this sorted. She had no option. To find the person that could change things, who had the power. To start with, she talked to a lot of people who were very sympathetic but couldn't change things, not least because it needed a change in their account system. And then she escalated it to speak to someone in a position of authority, but found it very difficult to be taken seriously or to get the time that her problem merited. And eventually, she found someone who both understood her problem, sympathised, but wanted to put it right and could do so. Now, at a much greater level, Jesus is like that person because he is the point in our prayers where power and compassion meet. The right hand of God in authority and the life and death scars of human experience. We pray to Jesus because he's the perfect channel for our prayer. So just to conclude... Being seated at the right hand of the Father is where Jesus is now. It's his present tense. And we noted that he's seated because his work of salvation is finished. He's at the right hand of the Father, meaning his power is ultimate and his work of salvation was also perfect. And he is the perfect channel for our prayers, bringing together power and compassion. As we noted when we looked at that passage from Mark, 
Jesus went to the cross for claiming that which came to be. But because of the cross and all that followed, our salvation is assured. He did it because we couldn't and because he loves us.